Have you lost your mind at the end of 2023, Tansy? What's going on? An ATF agent on the podcast? What? Didn't you just have a politician on the other day? What are you thinking? I know I get it, but look, the story is incredible. It's amazing, and I think you guys will all enjoy it, although it comes from a three-letter agency, the ATF. But this story is incredible, and we have a man that lived right through it. Peter Ficelli, uh, or Pete Ficelli, my bad. Uh, it's an Italian name, Ficelli, Ficelli, right here today on the Failure Stop Podcast, brought to you by GhostBed.com forward slash Wolfpack and FactorMeals.com forward slash Wolfpack 5-0. Let's go, dead leg. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on this is Sunday. About the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. Christmas spirit. Let me tell you that. Some of that stuff is just not Christmas friendly. Uh, but you never judge a book by its cover or by its title. Uh, by the way, this is the story of Operation Fast and the Furious. Uh, look, I read through the uh, his publicist notes. I think it's a fantastic story. The book is coming out soon. There'll be a little banner that scrolls down here shortly. I've already created it. If Deadleg's in here, he'll See where I made it. You guys can uh, get on the pre-order list for the book. This is an ATF whistleblower, also retired NYPD homicide detective. And for those of you who uh, don't know, which uh, you know, some of you guys live under a, a rock, I, I see you in the chats. Adam Cordaire, Loren, Will Cray. You guys, you guys aren't on the up and up. James Russell, you guys are all under a rock. You may not know, but a homicide detective is not something that they just give you it's not just something that just is like oh hey you've been with us for five it's not like one of those taekwondo blue belts you know what i mean where you show up to 25 classes and they give you the belt no to, to be a homicide detective in new york that is something that's earned you've got to be a top notch investigator at every level and you've got to perform everywhere you're at so you had to perform as a street cop to make it up to uh you know the entry level detective position maybe you were in the fraud department or larceny and robbery department and then you kind of move up to assaults and then eventually you get up to homicide so uh it's not that this guy is any slouch at all then he finally makes his way over to the atf which i know I know you guys have a problem with the ATF and all the DEAs and the FBI's. I get it. Nobody likes the Fed boys uh, anymore. We're going to talk about that, too. But we got a whistleblower here. So please, in the chats, please do it for me. Do it for daddy. Do it for skate daddy transy, like back in the old days. And just give the guy a chance. Let me bring him here. We've got Peter Ficelli. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning. Good to be here. Good. I'm glad you're here. So are you from New York originally? Yeah, born and raised uh, in Yonkers in the Bronx area. Um, worked as a cop there for 15 years. Uh, well, cop and detective. And uh, yeah, it was a great place to learn how to be a cop back in New York City in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, busy, a lot of homicides, a lot of violence. The full contact yeah. sport back then. I imagine so. Look, those were the, I guess the, they call them the good old days, right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, no better place to learn. Right, right. And so you made your way uh, uh, over to um, 
homicide. And then what, what brought you over to the ATF? A task force? Well, well, it started as a task force. We were working on a case. Uh, it's called Sex, Money, Murder. There's actually a book written about it. Uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's a gang in, in, the, in the East Coast. They were involved in a lot of narcotics trafficking between New York, uh, North Carolina, Pittsburgh. And they were involved in about 12 different murders. So, you know, the Bronx District Attorney's Office sucked. They weren't very good at prosecuting people. Everything was plea bargains. The feds were a little bit more aggressive. So, uh, you know, the, because there was some firearms trafficking involved in the case, ATF jumped on board. I worked with them for about four and a half years, almost on a daily basis as a detective. And it was weird. Like, during the whole time that sex money murder case was going on, I had a case that I worked when I was, before I was a homicide detective, where a four-year-old kid was beaten to death by his mm. stepfather. The kid shit himself. Uh, kid was handicapped. Uh, stepfather changed him. Right afterwards, the kid shits himself again. You know, the kid was sick. The kid was mentally handicapped. So the sure. guy beat him to death. So, oh. you know, that, that guy was sentenced to four years in prison. Again, Bronx District Attorney's Office. Um, during that same time, we were taking these gangbangers just for, you know, being felons in possessions of firearms. And we were taking them for the purpose of charging them and then flipping them and, you know, getting into the gang through their information. And those guys were getting four years just for being felons in possession of firearms. So I was like, what the fuck am I doing here as a homicide detective working state cases, wasting my time where there was just more opportunity to put people away for a long time as a fed. So I was working with ATF, good bunch of guys. I, I see the chat. I know they're not very popular with some folks, but in, in the inner cities, they work a lot of violent crime cases and they have a pretty good impact. So I, I jumped ship and went over to ATF. I was an agent in New York for about six years, mostly working gangbangers uh, who were, uh, you know, shooting up places to keep, you know, their territory. Yeah, in the Bronx, you made a lot of money slinging crack. You had to protect that turf or someone else would step in. And then um, another thing I specialized in was home invasion robbery investigations, which were mostly drug dealers robbing other drug dealers to sell the drugs for complete profit. Instead of um, you know paying for it and then just making a profit on you know on the on the margin, so they would go out there, rob, murder other drug dealers, steal their stash, and go out and sell it for entire profit. So um, you know worked a bunch of those cases, and then I was um, I was a 9/11 survivor. I was there on September 11th. I got there right after the first plane hit, and just you know kind of got old driving by Ground Zero every day because the federal courthouse was pretty close to Ground Zero. So I put in to get out of New York. Um, there were four openings for supervisors. One was uh, in Phoenix, one was in Dallas, one was in Jacksonville, and the other was in Savannah. And I actually got uh, picked for the Phoenix job. So it was weird. I got I left New York to get away from the stress and I guess PTSD in hindsight of surviving 9-11. But I actually wound up jumping from the frying pan into the fire because Phoenix was a shit show as we now know, you know, what, what happened there during Fast and Furious, which, again, here's the weird thing. If you watched the news back in those days, you heard the Republican version of what happened with Fast and Furious. If you watched Fox News, you heard the Democrat version. If you watch CNN or MSNBC, the reality is that a lot of the stuff that happened here was never talked about because it wasn't politically correct. And another reality is that some of the people who were directly involved in being the architects of that shit show are still in government. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to write the book once I retired. But yeah, I testified in front of Congress. I blew the whistle on something because it was ugly and it was not what people expect of their government. Um, but a lot of shit was swept under the rug. And it was time where I can actually tell the tale without having to look over my shoulder anymore. Because you know, the first look after testifying in front of Congress, it was four years of hell. 
Yeah, I, I imagine it, it would be. Uh, hopefully, you have officerprivacy.com forward slash Wolfpack, uh, which is uh, get your address and where you go to church and where you go to school. It gets all that stuff scrubbed off of the interwebs, uh, protecting cops since, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago. But officerprivacy.com forward slash Wolfpack, keeping all that information away from the public. <clears throat> um, but going back to the, AT, uh, the ATF and the whistleblower, and you talked about the early 90s, like all that stuff um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of that stuff's come to light now. And I think that's why a lot of people just really don't trust the ATF. They don't trust the FBI. They don't trust the DEA. Uh, when we see things like with the, what happened with the Project Veritas and, and uh, oh, the, the FISA warrants and all these other things. Uh, so, you know, is this part of corruption that you were a part of or, or that you blew the whistle on? Would you agree that that's probably why the majority... And listen, our audience are all law enforcement. So uh, a lot of these guys are ex-military, ex-law enforcement, wives of law enforcement officers. Uh, but even in our general chats, I mean, three-letter agencies are hated even more than the state troopers. Look, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I work with some amazing people at ATF. I work with some great FBI agents over the years. I work with some assholes from all of these agencies. You know, I mean, um, the, the issue is what I have found is that some folks that get into federal law enforcement think that they're better than local law enforcement. Um, you know, I, I obviously was a cop for too long to feel that way. You know, I, I walked the beat back in the day. I mean, that's how I started. I, I started walking a beat in housing projects in the Bronx. Very humbling when you're the only guy walking a foot post in a pretty violent project at two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I mean, we work basically four to 12, six to two in the morning or eight to four. The older folks usually work the eight to four shift. I was young. So, I mean, you know, coming on, um, you know, into the feds, it was different. Some folks come right out of college. Some folks come from other federal agencies. They don't understand what it's like to walk a beat. They don't understand what it's like to get into a confrontation with somebody based on a car stop or responding to a domestic you know, um, because look, in, in the federal system, you're going after somebody. It's, there's a lot of paper before you get to the point of going out and putting hands on somebody. You know, I mean, you usually have a warrant in hand or an indictment. It's not a lot of stuff where you're getting in there and you're developing probable cause based on a car stop. And then, you know, searching a car, finding evidence. It's 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 easier. Um, but look, here's the reality, too. The feds, they screw each other over just as much as you hear um, you know, Fed screwing over the locals. There's a lot of political infighting within the feds that happens. But look, I look at what's happening right now with the FBI. I look at what's happening with ATF, where they've become politicized. Look, one of the reasons I retired when I retired was because Merrick Garland came to ATF and gave a speech. And it was very clear that his values and my values did not align. I, I am a firm believer um, in going after bad people. I became an ATF agent to go after violent people, not some poor schmuck who's in his middle, you know, middle-aged guy who's buying a couple of guns to sell them for a profit to other middle-aged men who maybe are more fortunate than him financially. I mean, I never took a gun away from a person who was a low-abiding citizen. None of my agents did. Um, there are some folks who who were anti-gun in ATF, a very, very small percentage, one of whom almost became the director of ATF. I mean, David Chipman would have been a, a catastrophe as an ATF director because he's anti-gun. Um, there are one or two other ATF agents I met in my career that I would describe as anti-gun. Now, the other thing is, look, there are some ATF agents who were former cops or who some who came right out of college that want to go after violent people who were using guns and violent crime. Um, there are others who were lazy and just want to do the bare minimum or, you know, who want to just follow the informant around. And as we all know, this is, like you said, this is mostly cops. A lot of informants are full of shit. I hated informant-driven cases because I never fully trusted informants. 
So, I mean, you know, but again, in federal law enforcement, it's no different than in local law enforcement. We have some really good people doing the job. You have some people who would sell out their mother for a promotion. And, you know, um, you have some inexperienced people who promoted way, way before their time. Um, you know, the sad part is I'd say in ATF um, right now, that's you have a lot of that. And if you really look at what happened in Fast and Furious back in those days, you had inexperienced people who were afraid to step up and say, hey, we're not doing this. This is bullshit. So, I mean, what you have is you have the recipe for another Fast and Furious to happen, not only at ATF, though. I mean, this is something that's going on um, in other agencies as well, where you have young folks who don't have the experience promoting and are now in a position to make decisions um, who will do whatever it takes to keep the masters happy. So, you know, that's that's just a bad place to be. So how did you get wrapped up in Operation Fast and the Furious. For those of you who don't know, Operation Fast and the Furious did start under the Bush administration. And I know a lot of our fans, uh, you know, uh, it's so crazy, uh, Pete, like how, you know, how dare things. So I, when I when I went when I joined the military, uh, it was under the Bush administration. And I just remember uh I remember liking the guy and I remember thinking that like everything we were doing good. And I think now that like, we know like with, with modern technology and, and being able to do research at the palm of your hand and, and figure out the truth about things. It's so crazy how all those people that you looked up to now, you kind of see as the overarching enemies of the state. So like the Bush family, the Clinton family, uh, this goes through the Obama family, Operation Fast and the Furious. I mean, it, the corruption at the highest level, it's now like a new thing. It's just we're all now aware of it. But if I'm not mistaken, Operation Fast and Furious started under uh, under the Bush administration, correct? No. No? Where did it start? This is the thing I'm going to tell you. And this is why I talked about the politics and why I wrote the book. Like if when, when Fast and Furious happened, you had the Democrat version people saying, no, 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 this actually was a continuation of wide receiver, which was a different yeah, case that happened in Tucson, Arizona. Right? Yeah, that's what I was Completely going. different cases. But this this was the politicians doing what politicians do, which is lying through their teeth. The um, wide receiver was a different case. Involved, I think, roughly 150 guns. They Not defending it. It was a completely different clusterfuck of a case. Fast and Furious happened much later. Fast and Furious didn't start till like late 2009, early 2010, right? So so by the time I arrived in Phoenix, which was February of 2007, wide receiver was already gone. That had ended. So what was going on was I arrived in Phoenix from New York City in, like I said, February, late February 2010. My first weekend as a supervisor in Phoenix, I get a call from one of my agents who got a call from a gun dealer who's, the guy's like, hey man, these Dude just came into my gun shop with a bag full of money and they wanted to know every AK-47 variant rifle I have on the shelf. They wanted to buy them. So, I mean, and this is the other thing. When you when you hear the media, they talk about the AK-47. They act like it's the Kalashnikov assault rifle, which is a machine gun. They're not. These are, these are semi-automatic rifles that are being sold lawfully in Phoenix um, So and, and throughout the country. So what was going on is these guys who were related to cartels would come in with a paper bag full of money and literally say, hey, I'll take them all. So the gun dealers used to call us and say, hey, man, you know, they didn't want to make these sales unless they knew that we were nearby, that we can do an interdiction and stop you know, the car so that no one was going to get killed with these guns. So what happened was, um, in this particular instance, we watched the transaction take place. We follow the car. It gets on the I-10. It's heading down south towards Mexico. We pull them over like cops do. You separate the two people in the car. You start asking questions. You start catching them in lies. You know, But we already knew that the, the 
transaction wasn't above board, but we wanted to get, you know, obviously build up the probable cause. So my agents called the U.S. attorney's office and we explained, hey, these guys, you know, they, they confessed to not buying the guns for themselves. They're bring, you know, bringing them down to Mexico. And what we're told is, hey, man, you, should, you know, just let them go. We'll, we'll indict them later, which was for from what I saw in the on the East Coast, it was a different way of operating. So anyway, what was going on is as time would happen again and again and again, we would interdict the guns and get confessions and recommend prosecution. And we'd be either be told one of two things, let them go or take it to the county, which was bullshit. Because, I mean, you know, federal prosecutors get paid a lot more than the county prosecutors. Like, why weren't they doing their job? So anyway, this went on. And I'll, I outlined in the book not only uh, some pretty egregious um firearms trafficking schemes that we were made aware of. Like there was another case where this guy was buying 50 caliber Barrett rifles. One of them was used to decapitate a Mexican military commander in front of a, a daycare center. U.S. Attorney's Office declined that one. Um, but the reality is most of the tips that we got came from licensed gun dealers who gave a shit about protecting the public, right? So anyway, what happened next was, um, you know, my group's focus was changed in 2010 to home invasion robberies because Phoenix became the capital of home invasions and kidnappings uh, in the U.S. And they were only second in this hemisphere behind Mexico City, which is not something to be proud of, right? So our focus became working on these drug gangs that were doing home invasion robberies. And they created this group called Phoenix 7, which became the group that started Operation Fast and Furious. So this is like 2010. So what's going on is the... um, the gun dealers are doing just like they did with us. They're calling the agents that are in Phoenix Group 7 saying, hey, we got these suspicious transactions happening. Um, but what's going on later is these gun dealers are getting calls from ATF saying, hey, um, one of your firearms was recovered in Mexico and, um, you know, we need to trace the gun. So the dealers were like, wait a minute, for years, our guns weren't getting traced. Why all of a sudden are these guns getting traced back from crime scenes? And that's when the dealers started to realize that the ATF agents from that group, they weren't stopping the cars with the traffickers in them. They were letting them ride off into the sunset. So, you know, and, and the funny thing is that group was in a different office space than the rest of the Phoenix groups. So even within the Phoenix field division, a lot of us didn't know what was going on. And then once, once we started hearing from the dealers that they had these concerns, we started to get pissed off. So when people started pushing it up the chain to the special agent in charge, who's like the head of the office, he'd be like the police chief for the field division. We were always told, hey, don't worry about it. You know, we're doing something. And no one, you know, in, in ATF, in the Phoenix field division, thought it was just let the guns go. We're like, all right, well, what are they working on? Like, it wasn't until Brian Terry got killed uh, that another person that was in that group that understood what they were doing, this guy named John Dodson, came forward and blew the whistle on what was happening in Phoenix seven, but he spoke about the things that were happening within the Phoenix field division. The issue was this wasn't contained within ATF's Phoenix field division, right? Because for, for years you had these prosecutors that were assigned, you know, U S department of justice prosecutors that were assigned to the Phoenix, um, U S attorney's office that in essence were like the architects of fast and furious. Um, you know, they weren't prosecuting these cases. Well, when John Dodson stepped forward to blow the whistle, there were rumblings that they were going to prosecute John. And that's when I was like, hey, man, time out. This is bullshit. Like for for years, you fuckers wouldn't prosecute firearms traffickers with confessions, with evidence. There was a grenade trafficker I talk about in the book who, who made over 800 hand grenades for the Sinaloa cartel, who confessed to us when he got cr- crossing the border with 114 disassembled grenades in his tire. They wouldn't let us prosecute the guy. 
I mean, I outline that case in explicit detail in the book. But anyway, so that's why I came forward. It's like, wait a minute, you're going to prosecute an ATF agent for coming forward and speaking truth to power when you gave firearms traffickers who were supplying people who were murdering people in Mexico and the United States, by the way, you're going to give, you're going to indict him while you gave all those people a pass. And that's why I came forward and said, hey, man, this is exactly what's going on. And this is bullshit. And I spoke to Congress, um, which which turned into a four-year investigation into me, actually, because the U.S. Attorney's Office there and some people in ATF didn't want to take responsibility for their stupidity. So now these these guns that were trafficked, they were used in lots of murders. Lots of people died because these traffickers were allowed to just buy guns and take them down to Mexico. I saw in one point, uh, or I heard in one point, that some of these guns were actually used in the uh, mass shooting at the Rock concert in France. Is that... Is that true or is that just more propaganda? I did not hear that that firearm that was recovered in France was related to it. I'm not saying it wasn't. I was not. But look, by the time that happened, um, I was persona non grata with the people in Phoenix. So the stuff that was happening that was related to Fast and Furious was walled off for me because they didn't want me running to Congress with every single thing that came in. And not that I'm a freaking tattletale either. Like, I'm not a rat. But when you got a dead Border Patrol agent, right, and then you got the U.S. Attorney's Office that was fully on board with letting those guns ride off into the sunset, now talking about indicting an agent who outed that program, that's bullshit. But here's a, a, just, I'll give you another example, because um, it's it's appalling as well. There was another case that I talk about in extensively in the book, um, where a person bought a AK-47 variant rifle in Phoenix. Again, not the AK-47, it's a semi-automatic rifle. Once these guns made it to Mexico, there were people who were converting them into machine guns. Um, but they weren't. They were, you know, semi-automatic rifles here. So anyway, this guy buys a gun in the Phoenix area. Um, we're made aware of it when it gets traced at a shooting in Canada, Mexico. 21 people were killed with that rifle and other rifles, right? 21 people, four of them cops. Four other cops were abducted by the caravan of cartel assholes who grabbed them, brought them into the desert, and tortured them and left them for dead. So we find out who the... Um, the person who straw purchased the firearm was, he confesses, yeah, I bought it. I gave it to so-and-so. We find the trafficker. We get a full confession from the trafficker. We present that case to the U.S. Attorney's Office. They refuse to prosecute it. So, I mean, there were bodies piling up in Mexico long before Fast and Furious became a thing, and the U.S. Attorney's Office couldn't give a shit less about the carnage that was happening there. Now, with Fast and Furious guns themselves, you had a Mexican helicopter shot down with a 50 caliber rifle that was trafficked during the Fast and Furious mess. Um, there were dozens and dozens of cops and people who were killed with firearms that were trafficked during Fast and Furious. Um, and they were, I mean, just, they're, look, long after I'm dead, even if I die of old age, there will be people dying with guns who were trafficked during Fast and Furious. That's just the reality. They're not loaves of bread. They're not apples. They're not going to rot. They're not going to biodegrade. They're there until they turn up at a crime scene. That's just the reality that folks, um, you know, folks in DOJ and ATF like to forget, unfortunately. Did you ever figure out what the end game was and letting all these traffickers go with the guns? You know, I've thought about this for over 10 years because, you know, obviously my life and my family's life, we went through hell for years after Fast and Furious happened. Like I said, I, I was under investigation time and time again. They they alleged that I perjured myself when I testified in front of Congress, even though there were documents. I mean, look, that's the reason I was able to keep my job is I could prove that all their allegations were bullshit. But, um, you know, they said that Fast and Furious was put into place because they would identify these cartel people who the guns were recovered from. 
and they would be able to take down a cartel. The, the concept that they even thought that that was possible is complete. It's idiocy because look, DEA, for example, had incredible networks in Mexico. They had a vetted unit, people who were polygraphed, who were, who were screened, who were out there doing work for DEA. They had the drug conspiracy laws, which are strong. I mean, you know, narcotics conspiracy carries a lot of time. There are extraditions and whatnot. The, the concept that you were going to use straw purchasing laws to take down a cartel were, I mean, they made no sense. Now, what I'll say, and I think that this is where the politics get involved. When this was going on, there was almost a giddiness about um, something called demand letter three. I don't know if you know what that is. I don't. Uh, all right. Well, so basically, if you go into a gun store and you buy two Derringer pistols, right? So you figure two pistols, each capable of holding two bullets. You fill out a form called a multiple sale form, and ATF is not a made ATF's not made aware of every gun transaction. Like ATF's made aware when you buy more than one gun, or when guns are traced from scenes. Right. So what happened is um, traffickers would be able to go into a gun store in Phoenix, kind of like what I told you, and say, "Hey, I'll take every one of the AR-15s you have on the shelf, or AK-47 knockoffs." You know, so they can go in there and buy them and. In those instances, the only way ATF would find out about it is if the dealer tipped folks off, which happened a lot. A lot of our tips came from dealers who were good people who, who respected law enforcement, or they would be traced from scenes. Um, so, but with the multiple sale form didn't exist for rifles. Well, they used Fast and Furious as an impetus to force the dealers along the border states to implement the multiple sale form for rifles. Now, if and I can't say because I wasn't in those conversations. If that was their end game, it's appalling to think that you were willing to sacrifice human lives to get that ruling passed. Because I'm telling you, and we all know, we watch the news, that um, people were dying with those guns. And people are still dying with those guns. Jeez. So we got a question in the chat. It says, uh, uh, did the Fast and the Furious guns, were they involved with the Mexican Tier 1 unit that became a cartel? I'm not familiar with that. So, well, you know, I, I, that I don't know. What I can tell you is this: that there were there are several cartels. Look, the Sinaloans were kicking ass already. I mean, they were big, they were powerful, they were growing, right? Because you had the Beltran Leva cartel was kind of fading away. The Sinaloans picked up. Then you have La Familia Michoacan and CJNG, which is the the cartel down in Jalisco. Which are, if you watch the news now, the, the CJNG is now patrolling huge parts of Mexico in armored vehicles in uniforms with huge arsenals of weapons. A lot of those firearms came from Operation Fast and Furious. I mean, you got in Fast and Furious alone, you had 2,000 firearms that were trafficked uh, in that investigation. And is anybody held accountable for all of these 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 guns? I mean, doesn't it doesn't it feel like you, you know, like it, I know I don't want to get too consp- too far down the rabbit hole with conspiracies, but I mean, like. It's just—it's kind of odd that we're allowing all of these machine guns and fifty cows and things that are able to take down helicopters. We're just allowing all of that to go into criminals' hands in Mexico, uh, with with almost zero repercussions. Is anybody answering to that? You know, the, the, well, first off, the machine machine guns weren't being trafficked in Fast and Furious. Fifty caliber rifles were. Um, the machine guns were often made in Mexico out of the semi-automatic rifles. Well, I mean, yeah, let's, I mean, like, I don't know. Right, no, exactly. So, but, but like, look, there were people who were fired. Okay. There were people who were fired in Fast and Furious from within ATF, um, some of the, mostly the higher-ups. Um, but again, and one of the reasons, and again, it's in the book, 
the people who were intimately involved in this were prosecutors, federal prosecutors, right? Because they, they get a vote in, in what happens. Um, those folks are still there. Those folks were not touched because they're lawyers. And if you're a lawyer in the Department of Justice, which is run by lawyers, you're a protected class. So I name names and I talk about the decisions that they made. So, I mean, were people held accountable? People were fired. Is that accountable? In the minds of some, yeah. In the minds of others, no. Um, some of the people who were directly involved weren't. Uh, others were demoted. So, I mean, it's just, um, you know, it, it's it's not how government is supposed to work. It's not what the taxpayer expects. You know, and again, the, the other thing that really upsets me and another reason why I wrote the book is because, look, the Brian Terry, his family was never told really what happened. And then even within ATF, like, you know, when I left ATF, I left as the head, the head of training for ATF. Um, you know how it goes, man. You get some people who are just thrilled to have a job. So they come, they come down to the academy. You, you don't hear, I didn't hear stuff from them. They just came down to learn how to do the job, go through the academy, whatnot. Every now and then I'd run into somebody who, you know, who's happy to have the job, but did some research into the history of ATF and they would see my name and he'd be like, hey, weren't you one of the people who testified in front of Congress? And I'd be like, yeah. And we'd say, hey, can, like, did we really walk guns? And I was like, yeah, but not, you know, I try to explain the story that it wasn't something that all of ATF did. It wasn't something that even everybody in Phoenix did. And when we would recommend, hey, why don't we do something to teach people what happened in this mess so it never happens again? What we would always hear is, no, we don't talk about that. It's like Fight Club. You know, DOJ, they, they wouldn't allow you to talk about, like, lessons learned during that shit show of a case. And my fear is, like, if you don't know what happened, it can be repeated again. And if you see what happened in the book, a lot of it was just the abandonment of basic law enforcement techniques and principles that we did every day, right? And it was coupled with some real just stupid decisions made by prosecutors. So, I mean, and that's why I felt it was important to tell the book so that this doesn't ever happen again. And then the other thing is, look, President Obama was the captain of the ship when Fast and Furious happened. Did he know everything that was going on? I don't know. He should have, right? His wingman, Eric Holder, right? Remember he said he was his wingman? Um, I remember when Obama first talked about Fast and Furious on the news, he said, well, I read about it in the newspaper like everybody else. Well, if that's the case, my friend, then your buddy Eric Holder is a shittiest attorney general because he didn't warn you that this train was coming. You know what I mean? So, I mean, what they knew at that level, I don't know, but I know that they had a duty to know and they had a duty to own it and they never owned it. Yeah. It's almost as if they wanted those guns to make it down there. Were these prosecutors getting any kind of kickbacks for it? No, I don't know what the prosecutors were getting. They're still, they're still sitting in the U S attorney's office in Phoenix. Untouched. Look, I, my wife, my family and I, we literally went broke between dealing with lawyers and everything. I was surveilled for a while by, I don't know who, I don't know if it was U.S. attorney investigators, FBI, OIG. I mean, we went through hell. I saw, I mean, I'd, I'd have to travel back and forth to meet my lawyers in DC because I didn't trust email. I didn't trust phones because I didn't want them listening to what I was talking about. So, I mean, you know, um, the other whistleblowers, because it wasn't just John and I too. I mean, there were other people who came forward that didn't necessarily speak in front of the committee on C-SPAN, um, they were they were people who were deposed and, you know, they were railroaded as well. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people, um, there are probably about eight people that came forward and really went through um, an ass kicking for a while just for being honest. And then then you look at the prosecutors who just refused to answer questions, wouldn't show up in front of Congress, used the cloak of being, you know, uh, lawyers involved in deliberation to avoid testimony. And they've just, they weathered the storm. They're fine. Didn't cost them a penny. 
We got some sponsors to pay for this show today, and I've got a lot of questions for you. We're going to take a quick break here. Today's show brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash Wolfpack. Sleep's so good. It's scary. I know the Christmas season is right here and it's coming and going, and it might be a little too late to get that special someone in your life, the perfect gift, the gift of a good night's sleep. But you know what's right around the corner? Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's coming. Uh, less than three months, less than 90 days. Valentine's Day will be here. So now's the time to start saving for that ghost bed Lux or uh, all the other ghost beds, the Serena Williams, the Venus model, as they call it. They've got the adjustable base. They've got the ghost bed pillows, the cooling sheets, the toppers, beds made in the good old USA, USA, USA. I can still say that, right? People don't really chant USA anymore, but I like to do it on this show. Head over to GhostBed.com right now and get you sleep so good it's scary. Mental wellness starts with a good night's sleep, and that's why we're proud to partner with GhostBed.com forward slash Wolfpack for 50% off. I know that you're not going to get the bed for the holidays, but you're still going to get that 50% off because it ain't Christmas yet. So go ahead and start working on that bed now. 0% down, 0% financing, and that's if you have uh, ATF whistleblower credit at this point. You can still get one of these beds. Head over to GhostBed.com forward slash Wolfpack and get you sleep so good it's scary. And also mental health, mental wellness starts with a proper diet. January 1st is right around the corner. All those New Year's resolutions. You're going to try to lose weight. Maybe you're going to try to gain weight. Get your pump on. And that's where we got factormeals.com. Meal planning to the next level. These are chef prepared, fresh, and never frozen meals delivered right to your door. There's a menu of over 300 menu items. You just select what you want. Maybe you're trying to lose weight. So you get that calorie conscious. 550 calories and less on those meals ready in two minutes in a microwave. And I'm not talking about like one of those fancy microwaves. You, you can use that little peasant microwave in your, uh, your firefighter house. You know, the little, the, the fire squadron, you know, you guys got those bullshit little red and black Walmart edition uh, microwaves, two minutes in one of those things. And you can still eat like your uh, upper middle class. So, uh, They've got the protein heavy, 30 grams. So if you're in that fire station pumping weight, you want to look good and look muscular so you look better than the cops around you, you can get those protein heavy with over 30 grams more protein in each one of uh, these meals. Don't go to the store and waste your time cooking your chicken and your salmon and, your, and all your sides and your asparagus. Go to factormeals.com right now. Go to the meal planning, set your meals up. They get delivered right to your door in a beautiful package with the little icy stuff in the bottom that keeps it nice and cold. You put them right in your refrigerator, pop them in the microwave, bada bing, bada bang, and they're compatible, uh, competitive with all the prices now with gas prices through the roof, groceries through the roof, energy level through the roof. It, it's, all, it's all a washout. It's all the same right? So you can either spend your money doing it all that way, or you can just spend your money on factor meals. And then you can spend that time uh, with your family, uh, you know, core prep, all the other bullshit that you got going on in your life. Head over to factormeals.com forward slash Wolfpack five zero for 50% off. All right, back to the show uh, with the HCF here. So listen, uh, um, you go through this, you, you wrote the book, uh, walk us through what it was like, uh, writing the book. I, I mean, I mean, uh, we're no strangers to writing books around here. Uh, I've got a book coming out and, uh, more to, on that for our followers, but, uh, writing a book isn't easy. What was it like? Did you have to go through the DOD? Did you have to go through any of the government to get approval for this thing? How did that work? Well, yeah, I wrote the book, um, right after I retired because you, you couldn't write a book while you were an employee at DOJ, unless, you, of course, you're an attorney general, then you do whatever the hell you want. 
So I wrote it. It was a roughly 174,000 word manuscript, which probably yeah. was way too long. And it read like a 174,000 word police report. Yes. <laughs> so what yes. happened was, you know, we, we shopped it around and folks liked the content. And but what happened was that they were like, hey, would you mind if we brought in another writer to just yep. make it, you know, more pleasing to the average reader who doesn't want to read such a lengthy dry report. So um, Kate McGregor, her name's Keely McGregor. She came in and really just took that, that really probably too long manuscript and trimmed it down to about 80,000 words. So it's about 288 pages made it a lot more interesting. Is that and, incredible um, how that works? Like um, it took me like three years to write my book. My book's a comedy. It's called pig Latin, a seriously funny, true story. And um, I wrote it just to be funny. It's, it's just a comedy about being a cop and um, all the screw ups. But you know, I wrote this and, and just the way you wrote it, like I would write in a chapter and it would read exactly like a police report. Um, and then I, I went back and did my best to like make each chapter sound like a story. And the same thing. I went to a publishing house. The publishing house loved it. And they were like, yo, uh, this is hilarious. And it's even funnier that you're so dumb. And, like you can't write. And that makes it funny. So we've got to find you a co-writer that's not going to take, because part of the funniness is, is how dumb I am. And they're like, we don't want to lose that. And that's exactly how they said it. Like, very, very frank. They were like, your writing is so dumb that it's hilarious. Uh, but it's cool that when you get when you get your work back from the co-author, and it's like almost you could put like one of those uh, metronomes and read your book. And isn't, that, isn't that crazy? Like how good? You know, it's just it's like you think writing is just writing. It's, it's really not. It, it really is an art. And, and those, uh, those co-writers are fucking, they're really good. Yeah, well, and then the other thing is, man, like it's, it, was, it was fully written even with her and it's almost two years ago. So, I mean, the process is really slow. And then, yeah, to your point, like, you know, I had to send it to ATF for them to review it. Um, I was expecting them to come back with a ton of things that they wanted me to change. Because, look, I name names. I talk about things um, without sugarcoating stuff, you know. And I look, there's a chapter on how the FBI lied their asses off to try to fuck over one of my guys. So I was worried about that, too. Um, yeah, did so, you call no, actually, first? did you get call those guys first and give them a heads up that you were writing this about them, or um, did you change their names, or did you just no? Fuck I, there's 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 two names that are changed in the book. Um, they're defendants who we arrested, who we didn't convict. Um, so I mean, I didn't want to put those names in there because I didn't want to get sued. You know, obviously, if we sure. proved that they had done something and there was court transcripts and whatnot, then that that would have been fine. Um, you know, as far as the other names, you know, if people want to try to sue me, first off, I, there's other stuff that didn't make it to the book that you give me a platform and I'll rip you to pieces because that's coming out. But then the other thing is, um, you know, uh, the, look, there were depositions that were never made public that were sworn. So, I mean, everything that I talk about in this book is stuff that I testified under oath about that wasn't made public or some of it is stuff that was touched on. But yeah, or stuff that I have eyewitnesses to. So I had I had to go through that. But it, you know, look. And I know that you know, I read the chat. Some folks are going to think I'm full of shit. There's a lot of people in ATF who who were really still pissed off about Fast and Furious and who did not, you know, um, back up that plan and are, you know, just appalled by it. So and some of them are the ATF lawyers. And I don't want to get anybody in trouble when I say this. But um, so I was expecting, hey, Pete, would you change this name? Would you remove that? No. What I got was, hey, you might want to verify this date. And hey, we kind of wish you would have kicked so and so in the balls a little harder. Um, because they weren't thrilled with how this made our agency be perceived either. You know, look, ATF made some bad mistakes over the years. And look, I think when they make mistakes, they operate under the, hey, go big or go home mantra. 
because <laughs> when they fuck up, they fuck up big. But um, the reality is, is like I said before, most ATF agents that have, you know, knew I was writing this have been like, hey, man, we can't wait to read it because they're not happy with how the organization performed um, in that case itself, but also in just not owning it. You know what I mean? Like I always operated under the, the belief that if you make a mistake, I can own it. You know, uh, explain what you were intended to do, why you got where you're at. And usually if it's if it's, you know, um, the right, you know, people will understand and dust you off and get you back in the game. But when you lie, you know, to cover up in some instances is worse than the crime. I won't say that here because Brian Terry is dead. Right. And there are freaking dozens and dozens of Mexican cops who are dead. And I get it. They're Mexican cops. And there's a lot of corruption down there. But not every Mexican cop is corrupt, is corrupt. And not every dead Mexican cop from an FNF gun was a dirty cop. So, I mean, you know, anyway. But yeah, just the timing sucks because I really wish that book was out in people's hands already. And it's been sitting there, you know, going through its very slow publishing process like like you're going through right now. Yeah, you know, I I've, like a year ago, I got I, I got overzealous, you know, and I, I pushed to my fans that, uh, that I had the book, right? I'd, I'd, I'd kept it a secret because this book was finished four years ago, just about. And so um, it was about a year ago. Yeah, it was like last year that I was like, I'm going to release a book. I'm going to self-publish and I'm going to get it out there. And that's what I was going to do until um, somebody read my manuscript uh, and then called back and was like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. What are you doing with this thing? Do not publish it. Let us take it. Let us run with this. And and they got me with, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I, I've got to keep this a secret for another two or three weeks. But um, anyway, we, we signed a, a, pr a pretty good book deal and everything. And so, but all the people in the chats, if, if you were looking, people are like, what is your book coming out? What is your, we've heard that there is a book. You're hearing it from the guy himself. Like this, shit takes like two or three years it's got to go through legal it's got to go through like fact checkers it's got to go through like a million different editors it's got to go through art it's got to go through all of these different uh phases and each one of these staff members whatever publishing house you go through you're not the only book on their desk so each way it's almost like uh trying to get like a va disability right like it's got to go through a million steps uh and, and it could be in one step for months and months and months so uh but your book is coming out very soon you could go to amazon.com right now and pre-order the book i've been running it on the banner but if you're uh just listening which 99 percent of our fellowship is on listeners the book is called the deadly path by peter j Ferselli uh and keelan mcgregor it's uh, the operation fast and furious how bad lawyers armed the mexican cartels i love the cover of the book too uh definitely gonna want to put that book back on my uh, on my shelf behind me um, here, so I can't wait to get my hands on it. And uh, you know, it's it's important that you buy these books uh, when they come out on pre-order because that's going to help him in the book rankings in the Amazon book rankings. So I know it's the Christmas season, but you know, it makes a good gift to just uh, print out the Amazon order that you bought the book. So I know there's a lot of uh, of folks in here um, that are listening, that are wives or whatever. Uh, just if you're one of the you know, if you're a significant other and your 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 partner likes to read. Uh, go on Amazon right now, order the book, print it off in your printer, fold it up, put it in an envelope, and put it in the stocking. See what I did there? You see what I did there? And that helps uh, Peter out, Pete out, and it, and it gets that book uh, on the algorithms. I got a, a, just a couple of uh, ATF questions if we've if we got time. We got you on, and I got another fifteen yeah, minutes. Yeah, we have a uh, we have another show on this network, the uh, C minus Media Network, and the show is called Night Shift 
all one word, top secret information. And um, it's it's a it's a conspiracy theory rabbit hole show. It's a lot of fun. And um, there's a pod, another podcast out there called Antihero. It's a Delta Force operator, former Delta Force operator, uh, who now is uh, is an operator taking down child sex trafficking rings all around the world. But uh, and another guy who's a street cop, and um, they wanted to come on the Antihero podcast. Guys wanted to come on that podcast and break down the Mandalay Bay shooting. And these, well, I, I will say their, their, their take on it was that there were more than one guns. I don't want to put you on the spot, but all of our followers and our fans that listen to that show, it just came out like two, three days ago. And, and um, the video that we posted from it has 200,000 views already. And if there's like 500 comments, and I mean, people are like, I was there and there was more than one shooter. I was there. I was hiding in a dumpster and there was more than one. I mean, it was like, crazy and then every military person was like i definitely hear two guns i definitely hear this gun what is your take being that you're an atf guy what, what do you have an opinion on the mandalay bay case at all you know i i don't only because i did not respond to it and you know look i don't like to comment on things when i don't know like the evidence that was recovered like you know i was sure i think by the time that happened i wasn't even on the west coast anymore i'm not sure if i was in miami at the time um, I think I was. I think I was an assistant special agent in charge in ATF Miami. So, I, look, I was directly involved in in investigating the Pulse nightclub shooting. I was directly involved yeah. in helping with the Parkland shooting because I was by that time I was in charge of ATF's Miami Field Division. Um, a lot of fuck ups with those cases, man. There, a lot of yeah. people were on radars of federal law enforcement, another three letter agency, not the ATF. Uh, long before those shootings happened, same thing with the Sarnev brothers, same thing with Dylan Roof. You know, FBI knew who they were and, you know, they were Evaldi. doing other things. Yeah. 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 I mean, you can go back to the San Bernardino shooting. Remember the, that couple that yeah. was involved that they were making explosives on the watch list, but of course nobody was watching, right? So, I mean, I we can talk all day about Parkland Pulse, the Fort Lauderdale Airport shooter. The FBI interviewed the guy. Uh, he shot five people, if you remember, in Fort Lauderdale Airport by the baggage carousels. FBI interviewed him in Anchorage, Alaska, because he was posting things saying he was, uh, you know, uh, devoted to ISIS. Uh, he, when they speak to him, he, yeah, he's just a little bit of a nut. He, here's your gun back, right? So the guy took that gun, went, checked it in with TSA, flew from Alaska to Fort Lauderdale, grabbed his bag off the carousel, went into the bathroom, took the bag, took, opened up the bag, took the gun out, and murdered five people. You know, I mean, you don't hear about, you know, these sure. opportunities to stop these shootings from happening that they missed. Um, you know, some agencies get better publicity than others. But as far as Mandalay Bay, I've heard a lot of things. Um, but my direct knowledge, I, I just don't have it. I know that the, um, you know, the ATF folks that responded there responded very late after the shooting. Um, I understand there was a lot of politics around the bump stock after that, um, you know, which is now a prohibited item. So, but as far as the shooting itself, I don't have enough info to talk intelligently about it. It's a fun, you know, I didn't know it was that fun of a rabbit hole to go down. I'm not, I, listen, I enjoy listening to conspiracy theories. I don't believe them, but I love to hear uh, what other people's theories are. And I think we forget that these are just theories, right? Like we have a theory of how the world started. We have theories about everything and those are okay to have, but you can't have theories about things that have to do with politics or the government. We call those conspiracy theories. And that's boring. That's a boring life to live because nobody really knows the answer except those investigators on the ground. So I, I don't think it's a problem to have theories. Uh, right. I think it's, you know, to, to be obsessed with it. And, you know, listen, just because people uh, 
can't, uh, can't have some alcohol without abusing it doesn't mean that we've uh, forfeited our rights to have alcohol across the board. Just because some people can't control their mental wellness when they're diving into conspiracies doesn't mean the rest of us can't listen to them. So I hate that a lot of the, that show doesn't really get any traction on the YouTubes because, uh, you know, because they're they're censored so much because of their yeah. but you know I so I, I say that because I, I I'm not like a, a huge believer in these things uh, conspiracy theories I I like to listen to them but with the Mandalay Bay being that I was a 240 Bravo gunner in Afghanistan I fired that gun almost every single day of my life whether it be test fires leaving the gate or shooting it into the side of a mountain range somewhere and, and again a mountain range because of the echo. It's, it's very similar, I would I would think, to a city. And when I and so I'm very familiar with that weapon. And I do remember the first time I heard the Mandalay Bay shootings, I was like, that's not five five six, that's a two forty Bravo, and that's a Saul singing with it, you know. And and I've always thought that, but I always kept my mouth shut because I was like, eh, I don't want to be the idiot that says that, you know. Um, but then when these guys broke down the case for me, I was like, yo, this is bonkers. That case. Uh, I think the most bonkers part about the Mandalay Bay case was that uh, the case was closed in less than 10 months. Uh, oh, dear, we don't get any cases closed in, in 10 months, especially something of, of that big. But uh, another one that did it for me on that case was all the pictures that the FBI took that they released to the public of all these guns scattered out on the apartment and not one bit of carbon dust anywhere. And you know that if you fire over a thousand rounds, oh, yeah, it's it's carbon dust everywhere. It's a cool case. Well, Fun rabbit. No, it's, and look, I, I maybe I will look into some of that stuff. I, I just truly have not immersed myself in it because it just wasn't part of the country I was working in. But look, I get it with conspiracy. I, I was I was at Ground Zero after the second. It was before the second plane hit. I was literally standing near the South Tower when it hit. So, and I've read all the conspiracy theories um, about nine eleven as well. So I, I I don't get upset about. I used to get pissed off about conspiracy theories around nine eleven because of. Know how many Americans lost their lives that day, but yeah, it's always interesting to see how folks look at things because you know sometimes look some conspiracies turn out to be right, correct? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and the Mandalay Bay case—the only reason that I get fa that I'm fascinated with that one, not only because we had it this week on the show, but the reason why I think it fascinates me so much is because I'm seeing—I can hear it with my own ears. Like I remember watching the video when it came out, and literally my first instinct was, "Oh, this." Somebody want to call them and tell them that that's not a fucking five five six on a bump stock. Like that's a two forty. I know that sound anywhere. I've I heard that sound every single day for thirteen months straight. I've cleaned that weapon, taken it apart, putting it back together. And I'm telling you, I can't unhear that sound. And after we did that podcast again, we had like over five hundred comments on the on the video there. And it's so crazy because so many veterans are like, "Hey, just want to let you guys know, I served in Iraq and I was a two forty gunner, and that's a two forty gun." And I was like, "Yo, that's what I said." Like. That's why I'm like in on this conspiracy because it's like, no, I know what that sounds like and I'm hearing it and there's no answer to it. And I also know that I've been cleaning guns my whole life and the pictures in the hotel where these guns are laid out on a, on white sheets and there's no carbon anywhere. I'm like, come on, man. Like, I know that's a little detail, but come on, dude, there's no way you fire over a thousand rounds in 11 minutes. And the there's details matter, right? I mean, carbon everywhere. Yeah, you go to the range and shoot 14 rounds out of your pistol and you pull it out and, you know, set it on your coffee table and, and, and you, you know, there's black sweat everywhere and your wife's pissed at you. So uh, it's a fun case to dive into. I think there's some uh, questions out of the chats. Um, 
Let's see. Let me go through these chats. By the way, thank you guys for being in the chats. Uh, James Russell, Michael Hendricks, uh, Catherine Smith. That seems like a new name, I think. Um, she says that this guy has seen some shit. She says, uh, yeah, he has seen some shit. Look, a homicide, uh, walking a beat in New York. You know, a beat cop in New York, in the Bronx, in two weeks has probably seen more than, uh, you know, a, a cop in oh, California has seen their whole life. You know what I mean? Would that be fair? Well, look, I, I don't like to go down. I'll tell you this. Yeah, New York was a pretty violent place. Like, you know, when I was first going into the homicide squad, the Bronx, which is one county, a lot of folks don't know each of the boroughs is a county, averaged 600 murders a year, which is a lot for any county, right? So, I mean, you know, it was a lot of violence there. Um, but this is something else I'll say, because I, I always used to get upset when my peers from the NYPD used to bash cops from smaller agencies or from you know other parts of the yeah, I'm not trying to bash them. I'm just no, no, I know you're not. But like the, the thing is city cop in Raleigh. And I guarantee you, you walk in a beat in the Bronx. You saw more in fucking two days than I saw in two years. Maybe, maybe. But look, the other thing is there were so many cops. Like when I left the NYPD in 2001, there were 41,000 sworn officers. In it. it was like a, a standing army. So when you needed backup. <laughs> Backup was there like in seconds. Like yeah. if you called the 1013, which was the call, means officer needs help, you could have 20, 30 cops there in a minute. Um, I always had a lot of respect for the small town cops, or especially I used to hear from these Alaska cops where oh, you call for backup and you, you're you're there, man, toe to toe, fighting your, for your fucking life for oh, yeah. 40 minutes. So oh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I always had a deep respect for the cops that worked in rural and suburban areas just as much as I did for my peers. There was this weird arrogance amongst some of my NYPD peers, like because we, we were such a you know, big job. All the TV shows about NYPD that they were somehow better. So that's why I'm always a little sensitive to, to, to that appearance, because cops are cops, man. We're we're brothers. And I look, I know I'm an ATF agent. I read the chats. So some people <laughs> aren't going to like me because I made that move. But look, deep down in my heart, man, I'm still that cop that put on a uniform and walked the foot post in the projects and then you know, rode in a sector car or stood over dead bodies, you know. And it, look, here's the other thing, man. Look, people love to demonize guns. And if you think about it, like I responded, like I told you before, Parkland, Pulse, um, you know, other, you know, mass shooting incidents. The two incidents that I responded to that had the highest body counts, truthfully, 9-11, obviously. And what were the weapons there? Aircraft and box cutters, right? Right. And then the Happy Land Social Club fire back in the 1990-91, 87 people were killed because some dude was spurned by the coat check girl, right? And the weapon there was a gallon of gas and a book of matches. So, I mean, you can't legislate, um, you know, you can do whatever the hell you want to, to blame inanimate objects like guns or whatever. But the reality is, is, man, you just need to crush bad people who do bad things. And we're in this weird place right now where... You politicians, I guess, because if they go in jail and become felons, they can't vote. They're reluctant to prosecute. I mean, I don't know what the rationale behind this is, but there are good people out there that just want to raise their kids, um, you know, who who are afraid to let their kids go out and play because of the violence happening now. And it's not much different than when I saw in the 80s and 90s where, look, I'd see, you know, I grew up in the projects. A lot of the kids were African-American, Hispanic. They didn't look like me. I got to know their families. They were good people. You know, there were some assholes, like a small percentage of scumbags in the projects ruining it for everybody else. So you would see the good kids. You'd see them getting on the bus in the morning to go to school. You'd see them coming home. Parents wait for them, bring them upstairs. And then you'd see them looking out through the windows. And the project windows had bars on them so kids couldn't fall out because the housing authority didn't want to get sued. So in essence, these kids were in prison when they were good kids. And it was the shitheads that were out in the park, you know, which was littered with syringes and crack vials and spent shells. So, I mean, we're we're going back to that. 
where good yeah. people are afraid to be out there and the assholes are running the roost. And that's that's unfortunate, man. So I hope people wake up and start voting accordingly because yeah, good I actually, people want uh, their fucking streets back. I actually wrote uh, the only serious chapter in my book and my, and the only serious chapter in my book is kind of just about that. It's like, you know, in all seriousness, um, you know, it's all fun and games that these gang members are doing all this crazy shit. And it's, it's exciting to hear about and you see it in the movies. But like, I think people forget oftentimes that all of the civilians that have to live there and deal with that every single day of their life, that's not fun and games to them. That's not an action movie that they want to sit and watch. That must be a shitty existence to have to look out your window and see that, you know, homeless crack, you know, whore pulling plastic baggies out of her vagina, and you know, while your kids are standing 15 feet away at the bus stop. I mean, it's, yeah. pr it's pretty fucking gross. It's disgusting. Or they're squatting and pissing and, you know, the fights and the stabbings. And, and so it's really sad. And, you know, the crazy thing is, is that... Uh, it's these these dirt these I mean these dirt bags you can't really call them dirt bags anymore because all the bleeding hearts you know they give them all the empathy and they give zero empathy to the victims around them like you don't hear anybody being like well what about the kids at the bus stop what about the parents that can't let their kids go trick or treating because of this all we get is the empathy we're like oh well they're addicted and well they had bad families and it's like we give them a thousand excuses and we give everybody else around them to just kind of like deal with it. And that sucks. And that sucks. No, but, uh, you know, going back, uh, we, we break down cases every Friday. We do five shows a week. We're the number one channel where law enforcement and first responders go to be informed and entertained five days a week, starting off with comedy, society and culture news with two former police uh, comedians where they uh, go through uh, the TMZs and the, the the Hollywood news and all the movies and stuff, society and culture, and they break that down in a very funny way. Tuesday night, we have a, for, uh, a former police officer and a uh, current dispatcher that go through a true crime episode and, and do all the murder and mayhem true crime stories. On Wednesday, we have political news. Thursday, we have a fire chief and another uh, dispatcher corrections officer that does a uh, uh, sports news. And then Friday's our case breakdown. We have uh, big city cops. We have uh, uh, rural cops. And we talk about all of those things. And we've talked many times, many times on the show, uh, how crazy it is to be these rural officers um, with, no, with no backup. Uh, and I only say that New York, you know what you're, you, you've seen more in a day than, than a lot of cops seen in a year. I say that more of not just like, the murder and man that you see, which is a lot, but also the investigative experience. You know, rule cops don't get a lot of real investigative experience because they only get to investigate maybe one major crime a month um, or or two months. Whereas in New York, I'm sure, you know, if, if I was, uh, you know, a lieutenant on a squad in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is like a medium-sized department, and I had a guy from New York coming as a street cop, I would be like, yo, this dude's going to be, you know, he's going to be front and center on a lot of these big cases because he probably knows what he's doing, how to hold a crime scene, how to get the crime scene tape out timely and quickly, how, how to start the interview process because you guys just do it that much more. Um, and so there is something to be said uh, about big city cops, but we appreciate you coming on, man. Hey, listen, you, you changed the hearts and minds though, Pete. They're, by the end of the show, they were like, I really like this guy. Somebody said you're a badass and somebody else said this guy has really seen some shit. So you want him over. You know, you're like Rocky and Rocky Five. Fies can change. Knees <laughs> uh, can well, change. No, hey, man. We yours can change. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, I just speak what's on my mind. You know, I'm, I'm I'm a little too old to worry about impressing people. But thank you for the folks that said that. And listen, for what it's worth, you know, I mean, he, I know we're on uh, the eve of, you know, the, the Christmas weekend. 
So uh, I know you mentioned your service to the country, not just as a cop, but as a soldier. Um, you know, so to you and your listeners, for those who served, thank you. As a 9-11 survivor, man, I lost seven good friends that day. One fireman, six cops, watched three of them die. Um, when those scumbags killed my friends, you, you folks took the fight back to them. So thank you for your service. And for all of you folks that are cops out there, man, um, it's a different environment. It's a different profession. When I started, you know, politicians back then actually backed us up. Uh, be safe, man. Uh, if you're a cop, I love you. Uh, if you're a soldier, I love you. I, I really deeply, deeply respect the folks who put on a uniform and serve others. So Merry Christmas to you and your families. And, and thanks for listening. And even for the folks who bashed my former agency, I'll say this. I love you too, man. And I get it. Sometimes they deserve it. Sometimes they don't. But we're good. So. But if you're a state trooper, you can go to hell. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We love the state troopers too. Uh, thank you so much for for taking the Christmas uh, weekend to to actually uh, to sit here and be with us. Um, and that means a lot. And I always say, uh, I well, I don't always say this, but I would say this. I bet you were the fucking worst training officer in the whole world. I would never want a training officer who has been in 9-11 because I could be like, man, that, that domestic was really stressful. And you would just be like, bitch, I was in 9-11. Like it, everything, you'd be like, man, that car wreck was terrible. And you were like, I was in 9-11. There's nothing you could say to you as a training officer that you're just like, your take would just be like, I was in 9-11. And you would just, as a rookie, you just have to be like, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it was a dark day, man. I do. We've had a few 9-11 officers on and uh um and we've heard their stories and it and it's and it's crazy uh, there's another great podcast uh, uh on being a police officer and, and her name is abby and uh she has uh she interviews cops she wasn't a cop but i think she was like she was a journalist and um and and she part of she she's still a journalist but she has like a like a fake name, a pseudo name. Um, and that's Abby. And then uh, she interviews cops that have been in like very serious incidents and she breaks it down and she's had just some incredible nine 11 survivor uh, police officer guests. And uh, it's, it's, it's a fun podcast to listen to. It, uh, it's called on being a police officer. Uh, you guys can go over there and check it out. That's not on our network, but we still listen to it and support it. We support all the law enforcement uh, podcasts out there. All right, guys, well, that's it. Have a very Merry Christmas. Everything is pre-recorded for next week. So we did make shows for all you guys that are out there in your meat wagons and your cop cars and all these other things. We still made content. It's just pre-recorded. It won't be live. So if I'm not addressing you guys in the live chats, don't get all butthurt about it, okay? It's pre-recorded. I can't see the chats because uh, we gave the whole staff the whole week off. Oh, we gave them two weeks off. So everybody's off until the first. So everything's kind of pre-recorded, but uh, we still got plenty of content out there. We also have the Patreon. Thank you for all of our Patreon subscribers. Last question before you go, Pete. Uh, uh, the old school um, Crown Vic or the new Ford uh, Explorers? I'm a Crown Vic guy, man. Thank you, guys. I love, the, I love the Ford Explorer, but there's just something about the Crown Vic that just, I don't know, man. Just that's. Thank you. I mean, Thank I cut you. my teeth would, on it. I cut my teeth on a Plymouth Grand Fury, by the way. So that's how old I am. <laughs> what was the Civil War like? <laughs> hey, listen, thank you so much, Pete. You guys go out and buy the book. Buy it now. Buy it today. One last time. Throw up the book really fast for me, Dad. Like, throw it up one more time for everybody to see it. The Deadly Path, uh, How Operation Fast and the Furious, and Bad Lawyers Arm the Mexican cartels get out there get on that pre-order list and we'll see you guys after the new year guns up giddy up